0: No problem, no problem there. It's great to see everybody this morning. My name is Ryan, I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads, and we're in our series, Serve Wars, where we have been exploring servant leadership and how that uh, lives out in certain areas of our lives. And uh, we've we've kind of come to this space where we're starting to talk about servant leadership in... Kind of different spheres of our lives, different neighborhoods that we live in, so to speak. And one of those kind of neighborhoods is church, right? Our anchor verse for this series uh, is is a verse that, of what Jesus said to his disciples as they were all sitting around a table. Jesus said, "But among you it will be different." Talking about leadership, that those who are the greatest among you should take on the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. And that's what we've been talking about: is how do we learn to lead in such a way that we are servants? And we said leadership is influence. We all have influence you might not have a title but we have influence right let me ask you a question today that you're probably not going to want to answer because you'll feel embarrassed so we'll just assume everybody has but if you're willing to like take ownership of it how many of you in the room have ever secretly celebrated the failures of others Anybody ever done that? Like, I know I have, right? Like, you're just really quiet about it. And here's how this looks in its most simplest form. You don't know the person, but you drive by a broken down like BMW on the side of the road that costs four times as much as your car. And you're like, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> as you drive by with your $1,500 car, right? Like just, just, hey, at least mine works. Uh-huh. You know, you're not stopping. You're just, there's a little bit of you that's very happy about that, right? And, and we do, if we're honest, there's this like instinct inside of us that when people who we look at as maybe in a better position in life or have something better, that we kind of celebrate a little bit when, when not too many bad things happen, but just enough to be put that person in an uncomfortable position, right? To remind them that life isn't so wonderful, right? That life isn't what they always expected it to be. And I love what Yoda says in our clip that we watched today. He says, the fear of loss is a path to the dark side. Attachment leads to jealousy, the shadow of greed that is. He says, train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. See, really what exists under jealousy is this fear of loss, right? We're, we're afraid we're gonna lose something. We're afraid we're gonna lose a title. We're afraid we're gonna lose um, our self-worth. We're afraid we're gonna lose our responsibility. And that that really creeps in and we get this thing called jealousy. And I don't know what where jealousy kind of takes its space in your life. Uh, I think if you could remember back or for some of our high school students that are in here, maybe you played sports in high school or you play sports, you have sports jealousy, right? There's that new shiny freshman who everybody's talking about, who as a junior or senior, you're afraid is going, you're going to lose your spot to them. You're going to lose their position because of their gifts or talents, right? Some of us in the room, we have stuffed jealousy. Somebody has a bigger yacht than you, right? That's a tough one. I know. Actually, I don't know that y'all do yachts around here. That would be kind of a waste of money, right? Um, but uh, we, I, I sold my yacht when we moved out here from the East Coast. We just, we couldn't deal with it from a distance. You know, We felt it best to, we actually donated it to charity is what we did. Just shaking your head at me. No, you didn't. You're an idiot, Ryan. That's what is going on in her head, right? We get stuff jealousy. People have nicer houses, nicer cars, better looking kids. (laughs) You know, better behaved kids. Maybe that's one. I don't know. More successful kids. People start talking about their kids and you just hope that they have a B, you know, something like that. And here's the thing. Church isn't exempt from that. Like there's even church jealousy, right? And this is the space and sphere that I live in as a church leader, right? That I'm a human being and there's a side that, man, I could easily just get caught up and say, well, look what God is doing at that church. Look at what they're doing. Look at all the things that are happening there. Look at how great that person is. And I can like start to fear like, oh man, we're going to lose people, right? Or we're not going to reach people or I'm going to lose influence, whatever it might be. And the reality is this dark side of leadership where we start to control, we start to manipulate, right? We become these very aggressive people. It happens in the local church, right? What we are at right now, what what many of us make up the local church, when we start to fear other people. It's an interesting fear and it's a part of jealousy, right? So I'll define jealousy this morning uh, as this fear that we're losing something important to someone else, right? If we think of jealousy as that, that there's this emotion that comes up out of me and it's based on this fear that I'm losing something to someone else, something that's very valuable, that's very important to me. And if this other person emerges, if this other person in kind of Christianese language starts to be used by God in powerful ways, that I somehow am done That like what influence I had, what responsibility I had, my identity starts to fade away. And it's true in the local church, we can grab our identities based upon the spaces that were used, right? And, And so what happens is that sets in and we start to freak out and we fear another person who jumps into an area that we used to have complete authority or control in. And they have gifts and talents and everybody loves the new shiny thing. And we easily start to feel less than, we start to get nervous and get scared that God is gonna to start to use them and I'm no longer necessary. And let's face it, this is something that happens to us. A lot of times we're in that last third of life, right? That all of a sudden the things that we felt like we had the energy for, the things that we felt like, man, I was so key and instrumental in. And we start to look and see somebody with maybe a little bit more energy, a little bit more hair. <laughs> and we start to get oh we get nervous and we get worried and we start spiraling and we don't we see this in such a great example this jealousy that emerges in this life of a character in scripture named Saul Saul was the first king of Israel. The book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament is really about his life, the life of King Saul. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 8-31, through 31, that might be a next step you wanna do this week. Just write that down. You can Google it, it'll show up. You go to BibleGateway.com or Version on your phone. Read those chapters this week. You get the whole story of Saul. I'm gonna kinda of give a bit of an overview and kinda of rush through. But if you're new to Bible study, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Thank you for being here this morning. We're going to be looking at some scriptures that have a tendency to freak us out sometimes uh, because there's a lot of talk in the Old Testament, the first part of scripture, kind of the backstory to Jesus, the prequel, so to speak, um, that deals with like tribalistic cultures. And we're not familiar with tribalistic cultures. We don't live in a tribalistic warrior kind of bloodthirsty culture. And so God is at work in this type of culture. And so we just have to remember that as we read some of these passages, Passages that we're dealing with a different culture that is very, very far removed from Mars, and their understanding of God uh, was very underdeveloped, uh, as, it, just like their understanding of electricity was underdeveloped, right? I mean, it just is the reality of life. And so when we read this, we ought to be just really, really careful when we see things and we experience things in Scripture, which are wonderful and teach us valuable lessons, but in some ways stand in contradistinction to the life of Jesus, right? Who uh, appears and manifests the fullness of God and reveals areas where in scripture we kind of took a step backwards as we were taking step forwards, right? And so we're looking at this guy named Saul in a, a very primitive culture, tribal culture, first king ever in the history of Israel. And it's really how Saul becomes undone Right, that God has a plan for Saul's life, but he eventually becomes undone by this thing called jealousy. A couple of things you should know as you kind of launch in, if you're new to this person of Saul, you should know that Saul was uniquely created for his leadership position. If you're familiar with Saul, sometimes you forget this because you think of Saul as a tragic figure, but if you don't know anything about Saul, it's very important to know that God had established him as the king. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24 says that Samuel, who was kind of the prophet, he was the leader of Israel, was responding to the people of Israel who they wanted a king. And so Samuel goes out and finds a king and they choose this guy, Saul, who's actually hiding in the baggage, right? This is quite a coronation ceremony. Like, Saul's gonna be your king. You know, and he's hiding behind the luggage because he's very afraid. He's fearful. He's humble. He doesn't think he can do it, which, isn't, which is exactly why God chose him, right? Because he was gonna lean into God. He wasn't gonna go out on his own and go rogue, Right. So God chooses him, and this is what it says. says that this is the man the Lord has chosen to be your king. No one in all Israel is like him. I love that phrase. No one in all Israel is like him. Does that mean that he's better than everybody in Israel? Yes. No, just kidding. No, it doesn't. That's not a trick question. Most of my questions are not trick ones, right? It doesn't mean that he's better. It means that he's unique. That he's been uniquely crafted. His experiences have propelled him and set him. He's in a unique position to fulfill a unique role, his experiences, his life, right? The second thing we should know about Saul before we jump into a, a couple of verses is that Saul was actually a successful, confident, and secure leader at one point in time. That sure when Saul enters in, he really struggled with his confidence. And he has these moments where he struggles with the security and he kind of freaks out, but he really was confident. It actually says in 1 Samuel that when Saul had secured his grasp on Israel's throne, right, when he had become comfortable being king because of some successes, right, he had successes in every direction, right, that wherever he turned, he was victorious. So he became successful, he became secure. He performed all kinds of great deeds against the enemies of Israel, these people that had plundered them and oppressed them. He freed them from oppression. So like he really walked in. And even though the scripture says that they were constantly at war, they were constantly in conflict with a group of people known as the Philistines, Saul, whenever he saw a young man who was strong and capable, who had potential, he drafted him into his army, right? And this tells us that he was successful, confident, and secure. Secure enough to find those great warriors and give them a space in his army and promote them and give them responsibility and empower them. And this is actually what happens to a guy named David, who many of us in the room are familiar with. One of the There's one tradition of how David ends up in Saul's presence, Saul's court, was through the defeat of Goliath, right? That's where he first encounters him. There's another tradition that that David enters into Saul's presence because Saul struggled with anxiety. Saul struggled with uh, really just fear of people around him. And he heard about this guy, David, who could play the harp really well. And he brought David into his court and David would soothe him and David would kind of minister to him. And he eventually became his armor bearer and he became like a son. So these two kind of traditions collide inside of 1 Samuel. But what we know is David is one of these young men that Saul identified as having gifts and talents. He enlisted him in his army. And then all of a sudden, Saul, as he sets in his like, security, as he sets in his confidence, as he's seen all of his victories, he begins to slide into what we'll call the jealousy pit. And I want to look at a few verses in 1 Samuel that really explain this to us. And so David, right, is doing amazing things. David is being successful. David's been drafted in. David's been given all kinds of command. And it says that whenever Saul asked David to do something, David did it successfully. He was trustworthy. And so Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. And it says, one day when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the Philistine, that was Goliath, right? That's part of the story. It says, the women of the town, they came out and they were meeting King Saul and they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. Now remember, does that mean it's what women should do? No this is just a culture that was highly patriarchal, right? And that was the role of women. It's not the role women should play. So if you're reading scripture going, see, women should just come out and dance for their men when they come home. <laughs> eh, wrong. Okay. that's not That's not how we roll around here. Okay. So that's the Bible's a book of wisdom, not a rule book, okay? So let's, let's be careful about that one, okay? So they come out and they're singing and they're tambourines and symbols and this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his 10,000s. And the scripture says this made Saul very angry. What is this? They credit David with 10,000 and me with only thousands? And now he makes this huge leap. Next, they're gonna make him king. <laughs> right, I mean, that is a big gap, right? Like, a good day, David comes in and like, they're just celebrating. Saul's probably not around. They're not even thinking how this is going to hurt poor Saul's feelings. And Saul hears it and he freaks out. It's like, he's going to become king. And then it says, so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So what was it that began to unlock jealousy in his heart? What was it that was the first like shovel scoop? It was comparison. It was comparison. It was when Saul started to compare himself to David, right? The jealousy enters into his heart. Nothing good can come of comparison, by the way. Nothing good. It either builds up pride in us because we think we're better or it gives us false like humility and it just tears us down. So Saul begins in that moment, it triggers this thing called jealousy. Look what I'm going to lose to the other person. I'm going to lose my kingdom. I'm going to lose the throne. So the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelms Saul and he began to rave in his house like a madman. Now everybody freaks out at this verse, right? What kind of God does that? I, if you're honest, right? Don't you say that? Like you're like, wait a second, this is like Jesus says, Come to me, all who were weary, and I will send you a raving spirit that will make you rage against life. <laughs> Remember, like these folks are interpreting events and trying to figure things out in a context of which the gods control everything very particularly but let me ask you this question. Have you ever been frustrated by somebody who does something good? Has it ever driven you crazy to be wrong? Has God ever in your life, for those of you that are following Jesus, living this way of life, has God ever brought conviction into your life about an area that you needed to change and it drove you nuts? Okay, so there you go, all right? it's just We just have to think about the language in our terms. And, and so when God convicts us oftentimes of things in our lives, like, oh, I should be more generous with my money. <laughs> That's one that'll set everybody off. There's your tormenting spirit right there. Kids are worth it giving, right? That's just torment, but that's what happens in us, right? We get convicted of something. so so, So Saul is fighting against probably the conviction of God in his life. Why are you being so jealous of David? Why are you worrying about David? I've got a plan for you. Relax. Let me do my gig with David. I'm doing my gig with you. Calm down, but he can't do it. He can't let up. And so finally, one day David was playing the harp to soothe this anxiety as he used to do, but Saul would have none of it. And he grabbed a spear and he hurled it at David, trying to kill him twice. And this is what jealousy did to Saul. Jealousy poisoned Saul's leadership of Israel and his love for David. Scripture actually says that Saul came to a space where David was like a son to him, that he loved David like a son. And here we have him so tormented by what God is doing in David's life that he tries to kill him. It says then that Saul was afraid of David because he knew that the Lord was with David and he had turned away from Saul. And can I say this? Like this is an interpretation of events and I wonder if this is actually what God was doing or as much as Saul had just turned away from the Lord. He just believed it so much that it became his reality. Saul believed so much that he had made too many mistakes, that it wasn't good, right? I can't deal with this. The writer certainly of Samuel has an agenda to show the legitimacy of David as the king. This is a huge part of these historical writings. They're written from a perspective, but we know from Christ, we know from Jesus that God has never finished with us, that God never turns away from us. But Saul had come to believe that lie. And so finally, he had just had to get rid of David. It says he sent him away and gave him 1,000 men to be a commander over. And I love it, it says that David faithfully led his troops into battle. He served Saul even when Saul tried to kill him. He served Saul, he served the mission. And David continued to be successful, And everything that he did for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw the success of David, when he recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. Jealousy finally took a hold. So what happens is this, Saul's fear of David's success, of what God was doing in his life, would eventually distract his leadership, distort his reality, and destroy his legacy. If you read the rest of the story of Saul, you find a man who's now obsessed not with keeping uh, Israel safe, He's not obsessed with his role as the king, as the one appointed by God to provide leadership to the nation. He's obsessed with destroying David. He takes all the resources and he pursues David. He accuses David of becoming a traitor. He accuses 30 priests of hiding David uh, in a plot against him, and he murders 30 priests in their ministry gear. It'd be like what we would experience if there were a conference going on and somebody freaked out and came in and killed all these ministers or priests because out of his jealousy, he thought that they were turning against him and Distorted his reality. And eventually David died on the battlefield at the Philistines' hands. It's not David, excuse me, Saul. Saul died on the battlefield at the hands of the Philistines and his son Jonathan as well. See, you've been told that nothing can stop God's plan for your life. And I hate to break this to you, but you were lied to. It's a wonderful sentiment. It's a great ideal. I love the thought that nothing could stop God's plan for my life. But the truth is there's one thing that can stop God's plan for your life and it's you. You always have a say. You always have a say in what God will do and what God won't do in your life. And we see that in no greater example than Saul. At one point in time, Samuel says this to Saul in the narrative. He says, I know in your eyes, you think of yourself as so small and so little, but don't you know that you are the hope of Israel? That all Israel has placed their hopes in you. Saul couldn't get past the way he saw himself and understand who he was in God, that what God was doing in him was important and different. So he collapses under that jealousy, and that is what happens in our lives when personal jealousy sets in. It will distract you from what God has called you to, it will distort your reality of your work, of your home, of your church, and it will eventually destroy God's desire for your leadership. It's like a disease. It'll distract you from all the stuff that God wants to do. You'll start to get jealous about what God's doing at work or what God's doing at church or in somebody else's life. And then it'll distort your reality. You'll start to say things like, this person's out to get me. They don't have anything to do with you. And eventually it will so consume you that you would have stepped into this dark side of leadership and you'll walk away from what God has for you and you will become like Saul and not even know it. Saul ended his life as an enemy of God and didn't even know it because he was so consumed with his glory, he was so consumed with his legacy, he was so consumed with his story, he couldn't see the big picture. So you take this principle, I'd like today to apply it for a few moments to church life, true like local church life. I don't really like to do this very often because I do think the main event of our faith is Monday through Saturday or Friday through Wednesday if you come on Thursdays. (laughs) Right, what we gather in this space to do is to be encouraged, to be equipped, to go out and live this life where our everyday normal lives are spaces where truth and hope and love and grace and the gospel, the good news of Jesus for all people flourishes. But there is a space for the gathered church to come together and to be what I would call a corporate witness of the gospel, a corporate witness of hope. I love that our sign says hope is here when you walk in. I remember when I first started to uh, hear about Crossroads and they reached out to me and I did all the snooping around and hope is here, I loved that. Something that has driven me in life is where Paul writes to the Corinthians that faith, hope and love will last forever. I said, why don't we just invest in the things that last forever? Why are we wasting time? And I always felt like there were passages in scripture that revealed to us that hope is the foundation for all life transformation. It is the first step in which people begin to experience the grace and the truth and the love and the conviction of their father. It's hope. Without hope, there's just lostness. And so I love this idea that we can create a local church where hope just teams throughout it. But what will destroy hope is jealousy. You get involved, you get connected, you have a leadership, you're given responsibility, you take ownership. But then all of a sudden you start to freak out Let's talk about, Be- no, not Bethany, I'm just kidding. Let's talk about Andrea here for a second. She's sitting in the front row, walking into a vision that God has put on her life to create environments for women that are a part of Crossroads to flourish in their relationships, to understand the presence of God. And this is great. She's fired up. She's excited. She just led Galentine's Day, had 50 women show up, of which 30 didn't sign up. What is wrong with you people, right? And so, am I right? Can I get an amen? Amen, right? It's hard to plan food when double the people come out. No, okay, so, so she's all for it. So let's just fast forward 10 years down the road, right? Let's fast forward 15 years down the road. Andrea's been established, and this has been her ministry. And then God raises up another woman who people start to love to hear the insights that she has. She's just got gifts and talents. So what happens? Andrea is faced with this dilemma, this choice. Is God done with me and now gonna use Bambi, We'll call her Bambi because that's the most pejorative name I could think of. I don't know. I shouldn't, but let's just go with it. Bambi. See, it works. It works. Like Andrea can like, who's this Bambi think she is? That's not her job. That's not her. I didn't ask her to do that. Bambi's starting her own little group. Bambi's divisive. Bambi. And so what happens is, as God puts Bambi in Andrea's life to pour herself into, to say, maybe it's time that you must increase and I must decrease and God's moving me into some other area, or Andrea can get super jealous and start spreading rumors and doing everything she can to sabotage what God is doing in Bambi's life, which I probably is probably going to happen given what I, know. Andrea's not, Andrea's not going to do that, but that's what happens, so how do we fight that so that we can always create a space where hope is present, where people are equipped to flourish so that we don't get threatened when there are multiple groups for women or multiple groups for men or multiple peacemaking groups? There's multiple groups that are doing mentoring for young people. That's not my group. I wish Jesus would have had an encounter like this where the, he would see other people doing things in his name and the disciples would freak out about it. I wish he had something to say about that. <laughs> for the Bible people, they know Jesus did exactly have that moment, right? So here's what I wanna encourage you. First of all, and we're gonna go through these quickly is remember there's no one like you in all of Crossroads. You have to remember that. There's no one like you with your unique experiences, your personality, your spiritual journey, your gifts that God can use in unique ways in the life of our church. Here's a great story of one of you, one of us that has a unique story, a unique personality, a unique spiritual journey, And it's saying, I'm a part of what God is doing here because I wanna be bringing hope to people. Check out the story of Bethany.
1: So my journey with Crossroads Church started about 13 years ago. And I walked in a new single mom and I feel like I had failed my children, that I had failed myself, I had failed my marriage, and I had failed my God. And I tried to sit in the very back to where no one could see me and that I could just kind of feel out the church. And no matter how far in the back I sat, I really still felt like God was kind of yelling at me through the sermon. I could hear that John was telling me all about grace and how no matter how messy our lives got, God was still there. And no matter how far in the back I sat, I was still within reach of God's grace. Being a new single mom, I had found myself in a lot of really uncomfortable positions. I was not um, in a stable home at the time. We were kind of bouncing around with different places that we were living between friends and family. I definitely realized that I did not know what I was doing financially. I was very unstable and just trying to find my roots. In those times, I had made some bad choices in my codependency and I had found myself in a domestic violence situation. We had to have a civil standby move out which is two police officers standing there observing, giving you 20 minutes to safely get all your things out of a home. And for me and my kids, that was terrifying. That was probably one of the scariest things I've ever been through in my life. And it was one of those things you really don't want to talk about because it's kind of embarrassing that you put yourself in this moment. But I did, I, I talked about it and I asked for some prayers and I had some friends come up to me after choir and say, how can we help? What can we do? Those few friends actually took the time to reach out to their resources and said, Bethany, we're gonna do whatever we have to do to help you in this. I had 20 people from Crossroads Church that some knew me, some didn't. Some were complete strangers, and they showed up with gloves and boxes and bags and tape to get this done. And the police officers that were standing next to me were in awe. And I told them that this was my church family. And they were in shock that a church could come together and do something like this. We moved out a whole house of me and my kids and I was able to walk out with a new beginning. I still think that that's when I actually created my family at Crossroads those people that I saw reach out to me that didn't have to, they weren't obligated to. They just knew that's what God wanted them to do. I had my God moment not that long ago and I was sitting in service and I knew that I should have been paying more attention to the sermon, but for some reason, I just felt that God was just yelling in my ear. I was looking around me and seeing the needs of the people sitting around me. And I literally just felt God's voice in my ear telling me I needed to do something. I needed to serve more, that this was my family and this is where my heart is. And that I needed to start serving these people to the most capacity that I possibly could. I just knew black and white that this was my moment that God was telling me I needed to move. I needed to move out of my seat and I needed to start doing more for him. I look back at the people who's helped me and I want to be the one to help people. I want to be the one that's not always getting served but the one that's serving. Whether it's in the parking lot or on the usher team or in the children's programs. Just because I've had a bad road doesn't mean I don't have something I can give back. I'm Bethany King, and this is my story. I am a single mom of four wonderful children. I serve in pretty much any area that needs help right now, and I'm proud to call Crossroads my home.
0: That's good. Thank you, Bethany, for taking the time to share your story to encourage us. Bethany currently is serving on our church council. So here's the the challenge for all of us is to recognize that you have a unique story and you have unique experiences and you have a unique life that allows you to contribute in a unique way to create a unique church that is used by God to bring hope to people. As long as we think that the church is about what happens up here on stage and people are paid to do things, we'll never have stories like that. And so I wanna encourage you to find your fit Find your fit here at Crossroads. Inside your program, there's a little card that says, Find your fit on it. Isn't that funny how that works? Do me a favor, pull that out, wave it at me. If you're not currently connected into a regular opportunity to serve and volunteer and to create hope, your challenge today is to fill that card out. No excuses, no nonsense. None of the every we all have our unique time commitments. We all have our unique spaces. But every one of us in this room can contribute something to the vitality of our church. Every one of us, maybe once a month, maybe one, I don't know what I have. Some of you, some of you all have trucks in here. That's a resource that could be used for the glory of God. Some of you have plows on those trucks. Do you realize how much money could be saved and invested into things like lago vista into other ministries in the life of our church if we were to see our plows as not as ours but as the lord's and to be a part of a team of 10 people that said when it snowed we'll plow like we just have to reimagine and re-understand what it means to use our gifts talents our time our treasure for god's glory It's not always serving in kids ministry areas it's not always handing programs it's taking what you're uniquely wired and the gifts that god has given to you and the resources that god has given to you and that's why there's so many different areas that you can find your fit at crossroads you can fill out that card paul says in first corinthians that the body of christ is like the human body with lots of parts no one is more important than the other and that god has set each part in the right space says the hand can't say to the feet i don't need you if the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, what is that? That's hand jealousy. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make it less of a part of the body. See, so the answer, the question that every one of us should be able to answer is how am I bringing hope through the gathered church? How am I making myself available? Given my time, given my unique experiences, given my unique place, because then you'll know and you'll remember that you are linked in the chain of transformation. I came in on my, uh, in my uh, lift this morning and the woman about plowed into the like light post. (laughs) I was like in the back, I was like (laughs) But you know why she about plowed into the back of the light post? Because the company that plowed us, and you might own that company and just missed it, it's okay, I'm not angry. But there's all these mounds of ice that didn't get plowed and so you have to come in kind of wide and it's dangerous to come in. And you know what happens for a new person who pulls into our driveway and that's their first experience? It just immediately sets a tone, right? And imagine if you actually hit the light post. That makes for a bad day at church, right? <laughs> so when you, and I'm just on the plow truck because it's just, it's just prevalent right now. Like it, 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 because you say, I'm gonna recognize the plow truck is not mine, it's the Lord's. And so I'm gonna use it here. Uh, and I'm gonna give my time, talent, and treasure to clear that off. It makes a huge difference for that family that's brand new that they can actually pull in in a safe way, find a parking spot, not have to worry about falling as they walk their kids in. It's a chain of transformation long before I ever show up. You know, people make a decision to come back to a church within the first seven minutes of their encounter. I call it the seven minute rule. Seven minutes it's why what happens in our atrium is so valuable and those of you that are atrium hosts that create such a welcoming and loving space. So before I ever walk on stage, before a guitar doesn't work, before any of the beautiful music, the lights come on, any of that stuff, people have made a decision. You know, that's why it's important that we have clean bathrooms. It's why it's important that the hallways are vacuumed. It's why it's important that people are smiling. It's why every little thing that we do matters. You're wired for that. It's why being organized and having volunteers come in and stuff programs matters. And we all take ownership. We all use our gifts and talents. This is how a church flourishes. There's always a direct relationship to the growth of a church in relationship to how, but what percentage of the members of that church. And when I say members, I use it just as attenders are actually engaged in using their gifts and talents. So I wanna encourage you, be a part of that chain of transformation. And it matters because we live in harmony when we do it. We serve through our jealousy. We serve through, and we trust that God has a big story that we're a part of, and we live in harmony. This passage in Corinthians kind of finishes up and says that God has put the body together in just such a way, just such a way that it's perfect, and it makes for harmony among the members, that we're all singing our own part of the song. And so we have a song for you this morning. And as we're doing that, I want to encourage you to fill out your Find Your Fit card, fill out your Connect card. What is it that God's inviting you into today? Maybe you're feeling a lot of jealousy towards somebody at work or your neighborhood, and you'd like to talk with a care minister. Write that on your connect card. Write that on that connect card. I'd like to talk to a care minister. Just own that and let somebody pray with you. Maybe your next step is to find that place to volunteer at Crossroads. Fill out that Find Your Fit card. You're not committing to anything. You're just committing to a process. You're not committing to come in every week or every month. You're just saying, hey, here's things that I think I could contribute. Here's what I am. Just fill that out. And then all our teams over the next week, they'll begin to process that. And they'll reach out to you and they'll begin to walk with you because our goal is not to get you to fill a cog in the wheel. The people that work here, I've got a mission and I've got to get you to do it. No, our mission for those of us that have been called to work at the local church is to empower you into what God's called you to. No matter how mundane you think that might be. Why? Because it's a part of a bigger story and it's a beautiful story. And it's a wonderful story. And it only happens when we realize that I want my life to be lived for the glory of God, not my own titles and my own prestige. So they're going to sing this song of you that I love. It became a staple of my running list. And it began one that just to beat in my heart, and it became a prayer that I want my life to be for your glory, and that I'll go anywhere. Little did I know that that would take me to Colorado. (laughs) And that I'll do anything, I'll serve anywhere, just let me see your glory. And for me, that means let me see the glory of God lived out in everybody giving of themselves to be a a link in the chain of transformation that brings hope and life and joy and an understanding of God that produces intimacy and eternal life. That's the invitation today.